You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm Matt Migaki, the vocalist of Cryptopsy and the host of the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast, where I sit down with fellow metal musicians. We talk all about their lives and music while sharing killer craft beers. If you've ever wanted to sneak backstage and share a beer with one of your favorite musicians, well, Vox and Hops is the podcast for you. This week on the podcast, I dropped an amazing episode with Dom Grimal of The Last Felony, Ion Dissonance, and Cryptopsy. There is this episode and over 450 other ones to help you enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. So what are you waiting for? It's time to become a Vox and Hops head. Cheers! Welcome to a new episode of Delirious Nomads, brought to you by Blacklight Media Records, a weekly podcast hosted by yours truly, celebrity chef Chris Santos, I hate calling myself that, and underground metal connoisseur Matt Bacon, who loves being called that. This is your new favorite podcast for all things heavy metal, as well as breakdowns of your favorite combat sports and riffing on some food talk every week with very special guests from across the globe. Josh Barnett is here with us today. Thank you so much for being here, Josh. Josh is a legend in uh, MMA and combat sports. Uh, he's also a legendary presence in the metal scene, especially with Every Time I Die. I want to talk about that for sure. Um, he loves great food. I bump into him at my favorite Los Angeles restaurant, Jones. Uh, pretty much every time I go there, you're there. <laughs> yeah, that is my neighborhood bar, if I could uh, put it uh, in such terms. And, and, you know, the food there is fantastic, too. I mean, they're very solid um, you know, really comfort, uh, well done, not overly pretentious in any way, but just like straight to the point, uh, Italian foods essentially, yep. but they're short rib. They, they braise it for a long time, comes out nice and soft. And then, you know, yep. guys like Keith, the GM and uh, hardcore, hardcore Dave, best bartender in the world. So great place. I say, I've never, it's just great. They're openly every, every, every um, table is a booth, which I think is so mm -hmm. unique and cool. So you always feel kind of special and um, rock and, and roll in the jukebox, rock and roll in the jukebox, you know, a lot of big, it's just, it's just, it's awesome. It's probably the place I, I miss most in Los Angeles during. Yeah. It, uh, me and a friend were really going on about that the other day about how we just miss just rolling into Jones, grabbing a drink, hanging out, even maybe even getting a, you know, dinner. I mean, there'd be times where uh, if I was lifting uh, down the road at the gym, I'd clean up and then I'd just head to Jones and grab food afterwards, hit the spot. Yeah, it's great. Well, you know, we'll get through this. We got a, we got a, we got a long winter ahead of us. Um, Matt's been hearing me say this to all our guests, but I really think, you know, when, when we get back to the new normal, man, you know, concerts, going to restaurants, going to the theater, whatever. Like we all took it for granted. I definitely took it for granted. You know, mm -hmm. I, you know, I go to as many shows as I can, as many metal shows as I can. And, you know, as soon as I'm able to do that again, I mean, and I think the crowds at, at, at shows and crowds at, at sporting events mm -hmm. um, and, and guests at restaurants are just going to come out in droves and it's going to be like, yeah, the place. I, I believe so as well. And I know that there's been, you know, um, fair amount of pushback against the concept of the, the, the new normal air quotes and uh, generally as it's being used. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I don't, I'm not down for any sort of new normal that involves any sort of extensive and long lasting loss of rights to the citizenry yeah. over time beyond any potential danger that may exist. You know what I mean? It's just like the simple concept of, it's always difficult to give things away to a big state bureaucracy because they just generally never give them back. You know, right. I mean, if you think about like, think of the smallest increment, incremental increases on certain taxes, uh, just from a civic sense, 
we never get those repealed. Like they never go away. It's like, well, even if the stadium has been built, you still don't drop the taxes back to where they were ahead of time because you know, nobody is gonna, no one's going to fight you for it until we we come at you with like a massive, um, probably some sort of letter writing campaign or something. But in a positive sense, I would like to propagate a concept of a new normal, a new normal that involves people just not taking for granted communal aspects, being less so individually self-interested that they're all about trying to get what they can get for themselves beyond uh, what they can do with other people. Uh, not taking for granted the fact that small businesses exist, not taking for granted the idea that, uh, you know, U.S. made products exist, you know, like all these kind of things, like stop being as disposable consumers as possible and be more in tune with the people around you. That, yeah. that would be a nice new normal, if you ask me. Yeah, no, that's, a, that's great. That's a great messaging right there. You know, 2020 has been pretty, pretty devastating for everybody in all industries. You know, obviously the bands that we all love haven't been able to get on the road. Um, my yeah. restaurant company, you know, I have a big restaurant company. Um, we have over 40 venues nationwide and, and in Singapore and Australia, but we laid off over 5,000 people at this point. Um, well, I mean, and, like uh, what options are you given, right? I mean, you can't even be in business. How do you, you know, the, the, the restaurant structure, especially at least some of the ones that I'm familiar with, they're, they're meant to be, they're, they're, they've got a lot of overhead, but they also are providing a, a big experience. It's not just food, but it's everything that goes with it. And having the appropriate amount of wait staff so that everybody feels like they're taken care of all the time, which is really big when it comes to uh, service, right? And of course. having those service people, quality ones at that, working that kind of rest, that's an expense, right? You know, that comes out of your overhead. But by having that kind of staff, it makes sure that when you're at your tables, you're not sitting there for an hour and no one's come by you or that you're being met immediately by a host and they're taking your information down. You're doing these. So, so they're they're making you feel like it matters sure. that you're there. Welcome. But those are expenses, you know, and then when you strip everything down, you say, well, you know, you can do takeout. It's like, well, I, I'm sure. I'm sure that you could do alterations to your general menu stuff and create some badass takeout food but the food in places like Vandal and Beauty and Essex are meant to be eaten there. They are set up to be prepared there. They're meant to be eaten right after they were created. You know, yeah. like those little, the dumplings and the spoons and stuff like that, that yeah. doesn't translate to takeaway food, right? Yeah, and so, it's, it doesn't. And we've gone down that road and it's just, and it's not even just that, but you know, being open outside, you know, we, we did it. We stayed open outside in LA, but we, we were losing, you know, over a hundred thousand dollars a month, but we were doing it to keep the brand out there mm -hmm. really mostly to be able to bring back staff and create some jobs. But it got, it got to a point where it's not even worth it. I'm, I'm looking at my phone cause I want to show you something. Uh, somebody just sent this to me. Um, there was a snowstorm in New York last night, but this is what they, I have. A, I have a restaurant in Vandal, beautiful, beautiful giant restaurant. Our doors have been closed since March and it's been tagged to absolute hell, as you can see. You know, and we don't honestly don't know if we're going to open that restaurant back up again because you talk about overhead. My rent alone is, is $100,000 a month. At that, in that yeah, space. I mean, it's an expensive location to be right in the middle of Manhattan like that. I mean, there's no getting around it. I mean, one could argue that, hey, if you're uh, having anything to do with the, the civic government of the city of Manhattan, then maybe you should take a look into 
figuring out ways to reduce the pricing of real estate by and large. Of course, you know, that can create its own problems where, you know, developers can come in and buy up everything and hoard. I mean, I'm not saying it's a simple solution, but one thing to be considered would be like, hey, you know, I guess you're just going to have to take less because everybody's making less. Why don't you yeah. think of that? But uh, that's not usually, you know, governments usually don't go, well, hey, why don't we just tax you less and, you know, no, no, they never, they never take less. I feel, I feel bad for a lot of my friends in New York that owns much smaller, you know, independently owned mom and pop mm -hmm. kind of restaurants or bars that and the landlords are just squeezing them. And it's just like, they're not open or, you know, they're, you want full yeah. rent. We're doing, you know, they're, they're doing takeout and delivery. They're doing 5% or 10% of, of the amount of sales they were doing, but you want them to pay hundred percent of the rent. Like, right. Whatever. Yeah. I mean like, uh, what do they call them? Stimulus checks don't matter if rent is still the same as if everything was above board and operating as usual, right? Yeah. So, and I've seen this with just screwing around, looking at different pieces of property in, uh, in downtown LA. Cause I always think like, oh, you know, it'd be really cool in little Tokyo or somewhere near there to have a gym. I thought that would be rad. But uh, the amount of money, even pre-COVID that people wanted per square foot for some of these places, and I go, this is insane. Uh, you might get someone to, to get it, to get those loans and they'll move in there and they might live six months and then they're gone. And so to me, I'm just like, well, how, how, I don't see how that seems to be a winning strategy, you know, set it up to have the longest, most, um, most, uh, um, I don't want to use the word guaranteed cause there are no guarantees, but the most, uh, you know, dependable person that you could have in there that's going to take care of the space and use it because I'd, I just see tons of spaces even pre COVID empty and the amount of rent they yeah. want for them is insane. And I'd see them over and over for months. I'm going, no one's going to move in here. Not for any real length of time. Like you're really not going to make profit over, over years with this. It just won't, it's just not going to pan out like that. But you know, what are you supposed to do? And then I have a friend, John Needich, he owns Acme. He, he restarted that old restaurant Acme. He's probably suffering, you know, to just as much as you are uh, with trying to keep a big time Manhattan and a high end restaurant open. You know, it's just, again, another restaurant where it's like, I'm sure he can do takeout, but it, that's not the point of places like Vandal and beauty and Essex or my friend's restaurant act. It's just like, no, this is the point of this is to be here to, mm -hmm. you know, people go and spend a lot of time and effort in constructing the environment for the food and the experience that you're having. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I really do miss those things as much cooking as I'm doing at home and what have you, I miss going to a nice restaurant that's well put together, that has an ambiance and an aesthetic and obviously great food and just be in there, you know? Listen, man, I got you. There. As soon as we're open, I got you. And then the next night we'll go to Jones. Oh, 100%. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, well, didn't, we, I, I didn't realize you were an avid cook. I didn't realize you were, an, I know you love good food, but I didn't realize you were, you were, you were, you were an avid cook. You cook a lot at home, you're saying? Uh, I, I cook a fair amount. I mean, simply on one hand it's beneficial to just if you're if you have any dietary stuff or anything like that or any sort of goals you're trying to make with with where you're trying to go uh with your with your body and whatnot then yeah you got to cook at home it's yeah. cheaper you can cook a lot of food for inexpensive and then you know leftovers give you well depending on how how competent you are with ingredients you know you got a lot of options then um if you just simply have some sort of protein and some other stuff that you could throw with it. I mean, eggs is always an option. It's the easiest one, but uh, you know, it's just nice to have your own food. Plus I feel like 
You know, it, it, it bothers me that I even know other Gen Xers like myself, and they don't have any idea how to cook. And then let alone talking about like Gen Z and millennials and what have you, a lot of them have zero clue on how to cook. Male, female, doesn't matter. Like they just, it's, they never learned a, anything. And they would be interested to do like Blue Apron or maybe go take a class or something because it's an, an experience, but they're not really, it feels like they're not really geared towards really learning how to cook, how to just work with ingredients. I'm not that great of a cook, but I try, I, I try to, to, to become a better cook, to expand my horizons. I was just telling someone the other day how I bought turnips at the store because I never cooked with them. Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, or, or the first time I bought a rib roast bone in, I thought, well, I've never cooked this cut of meat, but it's meat. How, how damn hard can it be to cook it? And, you know, I, 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 I kind of consider it a little bit of a cheat because I also have a sous vide cooker, which is excellent. Oh, nice. And I love to do little recipes with that. But then again, you also have to think about, so my last rib roast I did, I just hand rubbed it with, uh, with some sea salt, some black pepper, ground, ground garlic or uh, garlic powder, a little bit of uh, red pepper flakes to give a little spice to it. And then I just would take a couple thin slices of, of good um, European style butter, put one on the bottom, one on top, put a rosemary sprig in there, seal it up, sous vide it for almost seven hours at 132. And then I'd, take it all out, keep collect all the drippings and then reduce it on the stove uh, for the jus and then uh, dab it and cool it down a little bit then shove it in the, the, the oven for another like, came about, about 17 minutes at 425. But I think I, with my oven, I should have probably went to about 450, maybe even 475 to give it a little better crust. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But you know, I mean, the, the meat was perfectly uh, medium rare all the way through nice and pink but the fat had uh had emulsified to it so it would pull yeah. apart and i could just put my my santoku just my kitchen knife and just lay the weight of the knife on it and go like that and it would just slice right through dude like, all right benefit yet <laughs> today i'm hungry <laughs> just yeah just clean it out of well, me i have uh i have something just brewing on the stove at the moment i started cooking it last night i was doing uh making some some base out of oxtails. Oh, beautiful. And so I'm doing oxtails and, and base with a little bit of bone broth, and then I just keep adding water to it. Uh, I've salted it a little, but not much. I add a little uh, like sambal, that uh, red chili paste yep. stuff. I add a little bit of sambal in there and a couple packets of mushroom dashi. And mm -hmm. so I'm gonna create my base for my sumo stew my chanko nabe and then i'll add um i'll add the turnips and red cabbage and baby bok choy and some different things as it gets closer and then you know you scoop it in i can add noodles to it when i want to and i just i will just pick at this for i don't know a week just throw it in the fridge heat it back up add more water good to go and as the vegetables any of the vegetable matter as you would well know that that that's left in after any 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 uh, any meal it just reduces down over time and becomes more more umami, as they would put it. Yeah. Look at you. I really I appreciate, Josh, that you said I'm not that good a cook and then gave us eight minutes of <laughs> impressive recipes. I'm not that good of a cook. I, I have I know people <laughs> like well, yeah. the guy on this podcast 
Chef Ludo is a good friend of mine, and Craig from Wolves oh, Mouth. So I worked, I worked with Chef Ludo. Um, yeah. In 2008, I, I helped to open. I helped him open. Ah, I helped him open a restaurant in Las Vegas. Oh, I badass! So, I love when did you start to get into cooking, Josh? Ever since I was a kid, my dad could cook a little, but not much. But my mom, my and all my grandmothers and aunts and all that, they were all killer cooks, and they all you know, varied. So from my mom's side and my mom's grandmother, that's where I have like my beef bourguignon recipes. I've got, you know, she would do stroganoff, uh, uh, different chowders. Like we have a good potato, potato soup that we make and my mom will make corn chowder and she can make chili. And she also knows how to can. So we had canned food all the time. But then my grandmother on my dad's <clears throat> side, grows up in the woods. I mean, she makes her own beans and makes her own this and that would help uh, butcher deer, what have you. So a bunch of recipes were gotten from her as well. And so different canning techniques, the type of Blue Lake beans we would, we would can, God, they were so good. And uh, you know, these, these very old country style ideas. So my aunt would make a killer whiskey bread pudding or, you know, they could all make things like lasagna in, in, in a sense, but they were not Italian cooks. They were very American based cooks mm. with my mom having some influence from her mother for some French cooking. And so to me, I would help her in the kitchen all the time. And I just thought, well, you know, if you don't know how to do it, how are you going to recreate it? I, I can't expect her to be making food for me forever. And in a way, by me being able to be better in the kitchen, it also made me more self-sufficient. I think it's like anything. Once you kind of get past a certain initial stage, you start learning how things interact with each other. You start learning a bit of the chemistry of what cooking is. And then you can just start winging it and then having fun here and there and make a bad dish, make a good one. Uh, learn how to follow recipes. I mean, shit, that's the first start. Getting recipes, just go at it. and then adjust for your cooking surface maybe maybe you're you're using different pans they cooked it in steel and you're cooking it in something else and the mm -hmm. steel heats up quicker so you got to change it or your oven doesn't run as hot or they had a convection when they did it and you don't I mean little things but that's just over time and the more you, you cook these things uh the better you get with it and then it better it teaches you how to cook other meals i mean serving somebody a good meal or a good glass of whiskey is a wonderful thing to do and I love being able to cook for my mom when I go home I I showed her that because uh, she had this litmus test with places and she'd go if this is a good restaurant I'm gonna order the pork chop if they can make a good pork chop that is cooked just so is not overcooked and is not dried out then I know they don't suck and so for me I'd always think pork chops all right I'm gonna test people on pork chops I tested uh, uh, what is it uh, that restaurant, uh, Salt's Cure, they were famous for their pork chop. And I'm like, all right, all right, mo mofo, you, this is a challenge. And they delivered. Their pork chop was fantastic, and it was cut. It was not overcooked. And so last time I was in Washington, I go, oh, mama, I'll cook us some pork chop. So I picked up a couple good, uh, decent cuts. Uh, didn't really season them anything particularly special. But I made the mistake of grabbing some black pepper or some red pepper flakes and it was in a grinder and it was just sitting in her, you know, how, how people have spices there for, you know, Ever. since the time of Moses. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I cracked a few of them on there. I didn't think nothing of it. Well, these were the hottest red pepper flakes I've come across in a long time. Her eyes were watering mine too. And then I tried to serve it to her and she's like, this is just, you know what? You killed it on 
temperature. It is juicy. It is cooked perfectly, but I cannot eat this. It is way too fucking hot. So over the time, I had to. I ate mine, and then I had to take hers and dice it up and do eggs with it and different stuff. But <laughs> I was at least proud that I cooked the pork chop temperature-wise correctly. I just practically gassed us out of house and home, though. So, <laughs> I would have loved that. Happen. I love the spicy things. So you so you can make that <laughs> me anytime you want. Um, oh, sure. What is your, what's what's a celebratory meal for you after you win a fight? You know, usually because of you know fights going for as long as they do the events, and also because I'm often the main event, whatever I can get a hold of. You know, right. often we'll come across um, you know really limited selection because all the restaurants will be closed because it's midnight or something like that so we are always in a mad scramble to get food but i would say right after a fight probably a big fat cheeseburger would be one of the i mean just so filling and and uh uh savory or a steak would do but uh you know usually uh if i can get a cheeseburger i'll be happy enough if i could find a place that could make a steak at that hour and make it well, I mean, right? Why not? But I, but then again, I also don't want to like go to uh, what is it, the uh, Pacific Railway Railway Dining Car again? I did that one late night on a date. She's like, oh, we'll just go here. It's, it stays open late. Okay, we get in there. Like the cheapest steak on the menu is like seventy bucks. I'm going. Mm. <laughs> I, you know, of course, yeah. Order extra lobster butter or what truffle butter to go with your lobster tail go for it what's your so favorite what's, post-show cheeseburger place oh man i i don't know i mean if i was in la good question um stout has a good good cheeseburger uh so does father's office um yeah father's office is uh, good umami has quite the selection uh but you know honestly just a good old four by four from in and out would do just fine it's a place called you know, the Stand. Not I got a burger from recently that was really good. Um, the Stand, huh? Okay. Good. Best sliders I've had in this city are at Twins Sliders, which is owned by the same people that do uh, uh, Tamarind Street Deli, um, Delancey, and the Taco Spot that I can't remember the name of, but it's there right across from the Arby's on Sunset. And that place, that slider spot, they have. Fried chicken sliders and cheeseburger sliders, and they are. And I don't like sliders at all. I feel like it's usually a lot of bread, not enough meat. Yeah, and it's kind of a bullshit. And usually they overcook the shit out of the little burgers. Not this place. Nice. I'm, I'm writing all this down. Uh, <laughs> so what's ha- so? I mean, really, you tell. What, what do you want to talk about? Tell us what's going on. Uh, well, I mean, what's you know, on? according. Well, well, for one, we're, we've gotten caught up with our whiskey orders. So we had pre-ordered out three barrels of the Warmaster Edition single barrel uh, cast strength bourbon. And just now things have come of age enough that we can bottle it up and get it out to all those pre-orders. So I'm pretty happy about that. I was working really hard on trying to get my whiskey available in as many places as possible, uh, not just with distribution, but trying to get places that I really like to carry it restaurant and bar wise. So Jones has it. Uh, I was talking to you prior to all this stuff because I was really wanting to get it into uh, the restaurants that you have. And uh, Chef Ludo was carrying it as well. And uh, I was trying to get it out there and then COVID hit. And so obviously the the outdoor, the the dining out stuff really took a, a massive loss, but, mm-hmm. but we still managed to sell a whole bunch of bottles. And so 
we're now starting to have enough uh, product that we can deliver the single barrel stuff and our blend, which we dilute down to 98 on the market. And so the whiskey, the whiskey stuff is going great. We have uh, a great vodka product that we just are really hitting the market with right now, which, you know, vodka is vodka. We use, what is it? It's a, a three, three source vodka. So we do corn, potato, and wheat. But the major difference besides even just starting with a good base alcohol is we do a special formulation with the mineral content of the water. And so we dilute it down to 84 proof, but the, the mineral, uh, the mineral content of the water really changes its flavor profile, but also the way it interacts with, with cocktails and the mouthfeel. So I'm pretty happy about that. We've won some awards with it from the competitions we've put it in so far. And we should have a rum product available by next year too. So the distillery stuff is it's going quite well. Uh, but, uh, you know, we're at that point where our production is having to step up in a big way to meet demand, which, you know, I'm really Worst glad problems for. To have. Worst problems to have. Um, yeah. What, how did 2020 affect you in terms of your fighting career? I know oh, big time. Yeah, yeah it was huge. Day, you were heading to Poland, right? Or something? Yeah, no, that, I mean, I, being a man, an international man of mystery, uh, managed to secure a fight abroad um, when there really wasn't any options here locally, or I should say in the States. And we worked on it, worked on it, and then uh, the fight came to fruition. Well, the fight was set for October. Everything went well. Um and it was great to get back in the ring after after a while. And uh, I had a real blast. Warsaw was fantastic. Had great food while I was there. I got a homemade Wagyu steak cooked for me, along mm -hmm. with homemade uh, Polish pelmeni dumplings. And we had uh, an absolute uh, treasure trove of scotches to drink with all this. But uh, uh, fighting has been difficult on a lot of folks, although the UFC has been running their cards, and so they've been keeping people up there. Bellator just started only maybe over the last couple months uh, mm -hmm. doing cards again. Uh, there have been some smaller events like LFA and, and some where some of our guys have, have been able to go out and compete. Uh, but everything has really been offshore is the way to do it. And, you know, I was a pro. I talked to these guys and they approached me about doing a bare knuckle boxing match. And I was like, yeah, sure. Why not? Sounds like fun. And more like the old days. And they go, well, and you can also clinch and throw elbows. I go, even better. And so <laughs> went over there, did their inaugural event, uh, fought a, a, a nice, a very tough individual, Marcin, what is his last name? Well, you can tell I have not had enough coffee today. But uh, it was a great fight. And I won in the in between the second and third round. They stopped the match due to cuts and swollen eye and what have you. But it was cool. It was, it was, um, it was, it felt like the adventure that fighting, especially back in the early 90s, used to be. Right. Yeah, I mean, you've had a long, I mean, Matt, Matt's learning on the job here when it comes to the combat sports part of this. Um, and he, so he's probably not as aware as I am. I mean, you've have a, had a long and storied career, um, you know, and you've fought all over the world, um, been world champion. You've, you've fought, you've fought other, other legends in the sport. Um, and you've had a long career, a really long career. Mm -hmm. um, heavyweights tend to have longer careers in general, don't you think? Or I think so. Uh, I think the heavyweights are able to, to keep going. Uh, I think speed, speed is something that, that most people lose 
think first, uh, maybe flexibility, but with uh, heavyweights, the power still stays around. So you're able to still make it happen. Uh, but, you know, being, you can't get by with being exceptionally slow and strong, but if you can't, but can't take a punch like that, that won't fly. And I really believe that everybody has kind of an in, an in, an inboard limit to how many, how many strikes they can just take over time. And mm -hmm. so once a person's body has hit that threshold and they just can't take a punch anymore and that's just it, you gotta, gotta put a fork in it. How much longer do you think, do you see yourself going? Till I'm done. Uh, I don't know when that day is coming, but I wanna get the most out of the athletic side of my career uh, because it's not something you can do you can't go back to if I, if let's say I wanted to become a, a chef and I go, okay, Chris, I'm going to apprentice under you and you're going to put me in the, I'm going to go through it. Um, well, I could transition to be a chef at 50 years old, right? Mm -hmm. That's possible. That's not, I'm not going to go, I can't decide to go back and like, oh, I want to pro fight again. That's yeah, just, no. it's gone. Yeah. What do you view as sort of the long-term impacts of COVID? on uh, the fighting world? Good question. I think mostly what they're going to be is related to the same thing that everybody else is going to deal with from a business standpoint. And that is the long-term impacts are going to be the ability to have events with, with uh, a live public and whatever stipulations, be it state, federal, what have you, they'll be subjected to that as well. I think that Fighting has actually been one of the better sports to do for COVID since it is much easier to isolate the, the competitors and to, to run rapid testing on them and keep track of things. Uh, I think that it's much easier to do it with fighting than it is to do with, with some of these other sports. Um, but it's still an event. Um, so you, you're going to want a, a live audience if, if at all possible. And that's you know part of what people pay a ticket to go see an event live is to to be there to have the experience. People are still going to want to have that, but um, if if measures are are put into place that prevent that from happening, then well, fighting will suffer. I mean, but I think fighting is something that is also uniquely more capable of being done without an audience mm -hmm. than say. A music show like that's concerts no I don't I mean there there has been some great workarounds like behemoth did an incredible live streaming thing uh, in absentia day and it was badass tesseract I guess just did one as well also mm -hmm. went incredibly well there's uh, they did what walk in mm -hmm. from home there's been some really well constructed well done um, performance, you know, music performance, concert type things that have streamed to people, but streaming a concert is not like being at a show. Mm -hmm. And a lot of these bands, I mean, Behemoth is a big band, but there's a lot of bands that are decent sized, but they're not huge like that. They make their money on touring. They make their money on hitting up like 500 to a thousand seat houses and doing it over and over and over again. That's also the best way to sell your merch is, by having someone at the event, now they want to buy the concert shirt. All these avenues are stripped away from, from these artists right now, and it is a big pain in the ass. Um, I'm sure the 
tid the season from Every Time I Die is going to be killer. I'm sure they're going to do a great show. Uh, they're, they're all, everybody involved in that band is, is just incredibly clever and funny, uh, as well as talented in the musical end of, end of things. But uh, I'm sure they would prefer to be doing what they have been doing, those Christmas shows with yeah. pro wrestling and all this kind of stuff and selling out the venue for like two or three days in a row. I mean, yeah. that's massive. And it's also massive for all the people involved in the infrastructure of that. It's great for the venues, right? So this is, again, it's hiring the servers. It's hiring all the employees. It's, it's even all the booze that gets drank. Well, you got to order more booze. So now the booze distributors are making money. And now the distillers are making money. by. I mean, so it, it is a long chain of events that comes from just throwing one show. Yeah. And then, you know, I know you've been into metal your whole life, but how? Why? When did it start? <laughs> I, I honestly would think that it's about temperament. I think it's just speak, yeah. spoke to me in a way that other music just didn't. And I do remember growing up, uh, the baby, the, where I was being babysat as a young kid, the son who was older than me by about like about five, six years, maybe seven, he would always listen to metal. And I remember seeing him wearing Metallica t-shirts and this, the Iron Maiden t-shirt with the cover art for killers on it and that was just like what the hell is that i don't know what that is but i want to i want to be in on this this is the kind of thing that i'm into whatever it may be you know and you're four or five years old going that's badass right right yep it's very similar well very similar it's it's so cool how i i feel like iron maidens are in particular because i had a very similar experience it's crazy how like that Iron Maiden art just has ma- made so many young like little kids go like I, I need yeah. to know more. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like it's just so weird to think about, you know. For me, yeah, it was Maiden it- King Diamond, and it was that. It was that whole over the top imagery and like just like what is this? Like I grew up listening to my older brother's Kiss records and Cheap Trick, but then when I was about twelve, um, this girl that I had a crush on, I went, we went to her house and she pulled out. Merciful Fate records, and um, I was like, "What is this?" Oh wow! No, that was that was it. That was it? Oh, what an introduction! Oh, that is so kick-ass. Yeah, I mean, Iron Maiden was such a big one for for a, a lot of people, and especially for myself, being in you know seeing Maiden at really in their big charge up from even the the Paul Diano stuff, moving on to the Dickinson era, you know, Number of the Beast and Power Slave. Uh, I just, it was just the coolest thing ever. And the music obviously is, is amazing. So um, that was really one of my gateway drugs, but one of my favorite shirts that I ever had, which I grew, uh, I grew over time was uh, I had an original killing is my business and business is good from that tour shirt from Metallica with the skulls, with the spikes smashed through them and all that. I mean, that was, I couldn't wear that shirt enough. It completely disintegrated at some point. And that was a that was a hand me down from that that kid Brian, that was the uh, the son, where I was being babysat, and it just didn't fit him anymore. He's like, here, you can have this, <laughs> you know. I thought it was the coolest fucking gift I ever got. Um, I, got a, and, I got a I have a Slayer Rain and Blood shirt that's like every time I put it on, I have to put it on like so like gently because I'm afraid it's just gonna like you said disintegrate. Just disintegrate, yeah. Those super thin shirts. Uh, and I remember the first time. And I told Carrie King this too. I go, dude, uh, Show No Mercy scared me. Like I wasn't sure that I was supposed to own that album. And then I would read the lyrics along with the songs. I'm like, mm, I don't know if this is okay. 
he's the nicest person on earth too. You know what I mean? No, Carrie is nicer, nicer than can be. Yeah. So funny, you know, we became really good friends over the last five, six years and, you know, same kind of thing, you know, he's got that image and, and, and it's Slayer and it's, it's everything. And then, you know, you're out to dinner with him and you're like, Oh my God, this guy's like the nicest person I've ever seen him met in my entire life. Um, yeah. He loves so, talking about football or I remember hearing his story about winning a, a football bet with Ronnie James Dio. And I go, Dio was a huge NFL guy. He goes, Oh yeah. Massive. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, that's pretty rad. You just, you, you bet Dio on like a Super Bowl or something like that, and you won, and he paid up on it. I was like, that's, yeah, that's not, like, it's like, that shouldn't be allowed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Plus, also, I was always really surprised at, at like the, the real shrewd, like really forward thinking mindset of Carrie. So there's um, a book called Murder in the Front Row uh, put yeah, together by, yeah, it's a kill, awesome book. Well, the guy that took all those photos, so he would come to all these shows, so Carrie would see him taking the photos and everything. Yeah, what a badass book. book. And so Carrie goes, well, if we paid you to shoot our show, could we then keep the photos? And I was like, yeah, sure. So here he was thinking, you know, we should own our own photos. We should do this. We should do that. And I was looking through that book at their house, and Carrie's like, oh, let me show you stuff. And so he's telling me the story of it, and he just brings out binders full of old photos of Slayer playing in high school gymnasiums and little spots like that. And just going like, wow, this is insane. I'm getting to look at this. And then, you know, hearing him tell about how, oh yeah, all those spikes and gauntlets, like they didn't exist. And he had to make them all. So yeah, he's yeah. also quite crafty apparently. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, that's like one of the cool things about like early eighties metal, like uh, Max Cavalera has a story about how they didn't have bullet belts. So they got batteries and they ripped off like the branding. And then glued the the naked batteries onto their belts, so they can have <laughs> bullet belts. Like that's, that's you gotta love it. Continuity right there, I like it. Mm-hmm. I like right, it. like isn't that amazing? That's pretty um, crazy. I mean, so we don't want to keep you too long. Like, what do you what are you pitching, or what do you want to talk about? What's happening in twenty twenty one? What 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 band do you want to see first when concerts are back up and running? Ooh. Well, I mean, I think one of the biggest tragedies was the loss of Psycho this year because, yeah. man, oh, was they're just such a killer lineup. And it was just, I mean, for me, I mean, hell, maybe it wasn't a loss from my end. Maybe maybe my liver would have gave out <laughs> during that whole, <laughs> that weekend because there's just so many people that I was friends with were all kind of converging uh, to play that show. And it just was such a killer lineup. Uh, that's a good question. First band I'd like to see after all this, I mean, King Diamond would be up there for sure. I mean, that was one of the last concerts I saw before all of this, you know, um, mm-hmm. there at the the Wiltern. That was a kick-ass show. Watain is up there as well because I was going to fly to Sweden to watch them play their hometown in Uppsala in April. And then everything locked down to such a degree that it all got canceled. I was going to do some seminars over there and what have you. And I was just going to put together this whole little package all built around being at in Uppsala with my buddies in Watain and just watching them play and being able to do whatever the hell they want to do uh, with their stage presence. And so I'm hoping at some point that will come back around 2021 or whenever that's available. But, you know, I guess beyond any specific band, I just want to be at the shows. I want to, I want to see Behemoth play. I want to see every time I die play. I want to, I just want to be at the shows. I want to be at the shows. I want to see my friends out there doing their thing and I want to see new bands and, 
I had tickets for Antichrist Siege Machine, which was going to play uh, at a small venue out here, probably five star. And of course, it had to be canceled. So just all this stuff. Yeah, well it's been, it's been, I, 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 I'm dying for live music, dying. Um, I got, you know, it's just uh, shame on me. I, I guess everyone's in the same boat, but totally took it for granted. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I've been very fortunate, you know, with my career that, you know, when I, when I go to the fights, I sit ringside. When I go to, you know, arena shows, I sit in the front row and I just took all this shit for granted. Um, and you know, I, I got really sick with COVID this year. I was, I was actually in bed for 38 straight days. Hmm. Um, almost, almost was hospitalized, but, um, I started showing symptoms like 36 hours after I saw kiss at the Staples center and I, I'm good friends mm-hmm. with Stanley. And so we had the Royal treatment and everything and it was fun and it was great, but definitely an experience that now looking back, I took for granted, you know what I mean? I won't say yeah. shit like granted anymore. Um, yeah, I, really I think that's pretty common for a lot of us. And I am of the nature that I think that this can be, hopefully if people are, if people are introspective enough, a big wake up to the way that people are structuring their lives and to look to create more meaningful, fulfilling things out of it and to be less blind consumers and less, I mean, people really forget that by being in America, we are constantly able to vote for the things that we like and, and not vote for and, and remove our vote for the things that we don't like because of our, our dollar, right? Wherever our dollar goes, we, that incentivizes people to continue to produce. And so from the smallest to the largest, I mean, we have an option on how to properly orient the way we approach our, all of our daily transactions and just how we structure the way that we put our lives together. Like uh, I don't buy any new furniture. I don't buy new books unless I know the people and I want them to get uh, the residual from it. I, generally try to only buy as much used stuff as possible. I'll buy stuff off of Bandcamp from, direct from the artists if I can. I don't really, the only clothes I generally buy, I have to buy jeans new, unfortunately, because uh, I my big ass thighs just chew them up. But uh, <laughs> the only things I buy new are, one, my custom made Converse that I get done, where an artist friend of mine, Dan Panosian, created this artwork and he got together with my mom, unbeknownst to me, and created this awesome birthday gift many years ago. And so now my mom can just reach out to the place that makes them and I can just order more shoes. So I just have black and white Converse that have my own artwork on it. And that beyond that, I only buy band shirts really. So, you know, I, I try to make sure to be as reusable as possible. And I try to cook at home when I can, but I also like going out. I like putting money in, in the hands of, of my friends and of these, these, these restaurateurs that that I know put a lot on the line to be able to, to put a place up. And I'm hoping that people also look at the economics a bit differently and where, you know, it, it's such a trend, you know, born out of modern monetary theory and Keynesianism to just spend, 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 always spend, don't save, don't save. But it's like, okay, well, under certain circumstances, you can get by with always constantly operating in debt. And then just when you start building, you know, buying it, paying it back down, just opening up more lines of credit, more loans and more expansion because, you know, play with debt. But I'm like, no, don't, don't play with debt so much. In fact, make sure that you could operate on three or six months of cash reserves or something just in case, because all these people thought, well, this will never end. And yet, oh yeah, it did very well end. And, you know, even stimulus checks, I mean, technically we're, we're paying for those too. I mean, that's just printed money against 
our own debt already and against our own interest interest rates. So be 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 smarter with the money. Be less quick to take those loans to go and and do more uh, to work in negative debt spending and really try to think about working in the black as much as possible. I mean, I have a pro wrestling event that we've done three shows, and one of my besides putting on the absolute best show we can with Josh Barnett's Blood Sport. The other thing is make sure we're in the black. Make sure after all production is done, all the wrestlers are paid. As long as we're in the black, fine. If we don't, if we don't make a shit ton of money, fine. But if we're not in debt, great. Just move along. Mm-hmm. Yep. Absolutely. All, 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 all good things, all smart advice. Um, before we, before we uh, end this, I, I wanna just, I'm going to say something and I want to get your reaction. Sharknado 3. <laughs> it was three hours worth of work on a set that only ended up being like 20 seconds worth or something like that. Yeah. yeah I, I, even had, I, had, I had seen it, but now I have to see it. Yeah, I've had lines in the movie and everything. I mean, it was, it was just supposed to be a celebrity death or a guest death or whatever, but you know, they had all this, they had a little bit of stuff for me to do and I had to jump off of a box and all this kind of stuff on a green screen. But yeah, it was, show up for three hours, eventually spend a half hour getting your pickup shots and then only cutting it down to like the most minuscule amount. Yeah. I can't wait to see it actually. No. Yeah. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. yeah this is pretty dope as, as a, as a Sharknado diehard. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, I didn't even know that it's, it's oh, got yeah. a, um, a prominent space in the Sharknado canon. <laughs> I mean, I would describe it as prominent, but I was definitely excited, but I was didn't want to like be weird and ask. So I'm glad you did, Chris. We'll let you go, um, but we're going to have you back again in six months or so when everything's getting back to normal. I want you to te- text me offline. Text me your address. I want to send you my cookbook. I want to mm-hmm. send you my barbecue sauce, and I have Love a it. mild salsa verde I want to send you too. Um, I'm into all of that. Uh, I do. I like doing braises and uh, you know things like uh, braised short ribs. And barbecue, using barbecue sauces and things like that. Yeah, I'm into it. My barbecue sauce has actually won every every time it's been entered into a contest. It's won. It's never, never not. It's undefeated. So it's, undefeated. Uh, I like the for, sound of that. For for a New England kid, uh, somehow I learned how to make great barbecue sauce. So I'll send it your way. <laughs> it's like um, I'm into it. I'm not barbecue sauce. Uh, yeah, and I'm not. Uh, I'm not uh, an elitist. I'm like, oh, if this barbecue sauce is made out in New York, I'm like, I couldn't care less, man. If it's good, it's good. Yeah. All right. Well, listen, man, thank you so much for being a, being a part of this. Uh, really, really exciting. You're going to be part of the initial kind of launch of this, which is really exciting to me. Uh, let's stay in touch. Let's grab dinner when we come, when we can send me your address so I can send you that stuff and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll stay in touch. Yeah. hundred percent, man. I'm glad to be a part of this and yeah, glad to be a part of something with you to, and, and getting things up and moving. I appreciate it very much. So does Matt. Thank, thank you, you very so much. much. Josh. Take care guys. All right. So that was awesome. Thank you, everyone out there, for listening to Delirious Nomads, sponsored by Blacklight Media. We will be coming back at you next week with another awesome guest. Be sure to follow Blacklight Media on socials for new music and more. And above all, keep it heavy. Hey, this is Aaron from No Simple Road. I'm inviting you to come hang out with Apple, Mel, and I as we talk with the musicians, artists, chefs, authors, and beyond from the world that turns us on. We're reaching into the improvisational music scene, the psychedelic culture, the festival world, and getting to know what makes the people tick that create those scenes. 
Come join us on the long, strange trip over at No Simple Road. It is now 2024, and the choice is up to you. Do you listen to good podcasts, or do you listen to bad ones? Well, we've got a suggestion for you. How about you listen to a good podcast for the first time in your miserable life? I can think of one. Overnight Drive. Going strong. 11 years now. The podcast about nothing. Your favorite podcast's favorite podcast. Do you enjoy nothing? <laughs> so do we. Why don't you come over and check it out and stop listening to other podcasts. Thank you. <laughs>